chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. major sporting event is scheduled for late this afternoon. As many of us know, millions of spectators worldwide will watch as powerful men throw their bodies at one another in one bone-crunching collision after another for 60 minutes. Football is certainly a grueling sport, but uh, compared to the sport of wrestling, football is a thing of ease. Think about this. A 60-minute football game that we assume will be played later today, will probably take about three and a half hours to complete. That translates into about 60 minutes of play and about 160 minutes of sitting around and waiting for play to happen. And even during some of the minutes as they pass away, there will be time in huddles talking or time walking slowly to huddles to talk some more. It's really not a whole lot of action when you put it all together. I realize that football is hard on the body, but the effort required to play football pales in comparison with the effort typically necessary to wrestle. Wrestling is one of the most ancient of sports and also one of the most physically strenuous and grueling. If you are evenly matched with your opponent, wrestling is an all-out, no-holds-barred, painful, utterly exhausting undertaking. Wrestling calls upon all of one's physical and emotional reserves. Witness the fact that the taxing game of football, as taxing as it is, is played in four 15-minute quarters. Wrestling in just a few minute periods, three. Because that's really about all the body can take of wrestling. Wrestling is a very strenuous kind of warfare. Wrestling is also a very up-close and personal struggle. Wrestlers grapple in hand-to-hand combat with their opponent. You grab and twist and throw his body. You feel his sweat. You smell his breath. You hear his every grunt and moan. His elbow strikes you hard on the nose. His head is butted like a ramrod into your ribs. His arms and legs twist and twist you into painful contortions, grasping, squeezing, turning, throwing, Body parts flailing about as muscle is pitted against muscle. Fittingly, we employ this word to wrestle in a figurative sense, a figurative sense of grappling with some kind of opponent. We speak figuratively and often of wrestling with a problem. When you wrestle with a problem, you take it on. You don't look at it from a distance. You don't just let it sit there and walk away and huddle about it and discuss it over commercials or something like that. When you wrestle with a problem, you go after it. You hit it. You grapple with it. You take it on. You labor to beat it in hand-to-hand combat to win over it by solving it. You're probably wrestling today with a problem. There is someone or some circumstance of life, maybe several, that is proving a formidable foe. And you find yourself wrestling, grappling, striving to win over that person or over that trial. But what is really challenging to us is when we find ourselves wrestling not against people or circumstances, but when we find ourselves wrestling against God. Have you ever been there? 
I certainly have. And perhaps you're even there right now, or will be in the very near future. You are engaged in a wrestling match with some problem or person, but as time passes, you become strangely aware that you are, you are really wrestling with God. Or perhaps there's no need for discovery. You have chosen knowingly to wrestle with God. And maybe not necessarily in the purely sinful sense of rebellion against Him, but in the sense that you must win something from Him and you strive with the Almighty. In a very primitive biblical account, we witness today a man who wrestled with God and who did so in the context of contentious relationships with man. In a thrilling turn of events, the patriarch Jacob is freed from his manipulative uncle Laban in Haran. He returns to the land of promise, to Canaan, from Haran. This, event of, uh, this turn of events leaves Jacob free now to move back into the promised land. But as he caravans south on the eastern side of the Jordan River, working his way down southward toward his brother's territory uh, in Edom, uh, Esau, his brother, he works his way down. He's not yet in the land. Now remember, as he left the land, as he left the promised land, he saw the Lord at Bethel. There were angels there. That staircase ascending and descending angels upon it and God there in His very presence. And God says to him there, I will bring you back to the land. We went to the immersion experience in Haran. All of the difficulties and trials that he faced there in that situation. But now the immersion is about to end. He's come back to the area, back to Canaan. He's on the east side of Jordan, working his way southward. And here, Jacob again meets up with angels. Verse 1 of chapter 32, Genesis 32.1, Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanim. That's not a meaningless insertion there. Not much information for us, but two verses that help us to see. He saw the Lord. He saw a vision of angels as he left the land. He sees a vision of angels now as he returns to the land. Laban heads north, back to Haran. Jacob moves south toward Edom. It's important to remember that when he originally left Canaan here, he saw a vision of angels, he sees them again as he returns, and both times Jacob fittingly names the place. This is the camp of God here in this passage, parallels chapter 28 and verse 16. Do you remember when he was at Bethel, what did he say? He said, surely the Lord is in this place, and he names it Bethel, the house of God. Here he names this place Mahanim. The location, we do not know exactly where this location is today, but it was east of Jordan on the border of the territory of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh on the east side of Jordan. We know that much from other biblical accounts. You might remember the name. This is where Ishbosheth, Saul's son, set up his kingdom, centered the capital of his kingdom as it was in competition with David at Hebron. This is the place then where David himself goes and, ha and sets up that interim uh, capital, so to speak, as he is running from Absalom in that rebellion. So we know that it was a place. It was a place well known in that period of time. We don't know exactly where it is today, but the name is what's more important to us here. Mahanim means two camps. We're not told why. 
Not told why Jacob names the place this. Bethel, it's very obvious, the house of God. God is here. He remembers this place. But why two camps, we're not really sure. Does Jacob refer to his camp, or to this camp rather, where God and his angels are, and then also to Bethel, that this is a second camp? God has two camps here in the, in the land. I think it's doubtful, but that might be the case. Or does he refer to his camp, his people, and God's camp? There are two camps here. There's my camp with my people, and there's also God's camp with his angels. I think that's much more likely. Or could this designation even point ahead to the two companies into which Jacob will divide his family as he meets Esau? I'm not so sure about that, but it's hard to say. Perhaps there's more than one meaning. What we do know is that the designation will prove very fitting to what happens in the rest of the narrative. Jacob will divide his family into two camps. And there will be here as well two camps on two levels. The camp of God and Jacob's people. And Jacob's people waiting to meet the approaching camp of Esau. More on that later. Jacob will soon experience that he must come to terms with God in his camp here before he can deal with Esau in his approaching camp. Mahanim, the angels meet him on the border of the land. He is back, but he is now ready to enter another crisis. Jacob meets the angels here. Secondly, at verse 3, Jacob prepares to meet Esau. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir in the country of Edom. Remember that Jacob originally fled Canaan for fear of his life. And the words Moses employs here highlight the tension between him and his brother. What's the tension that we see in the text? The word seer is related to the Hebrew word for hairy, which recalls when the smooth-skinned Jacob deceived their father Isaac, posing uh, as his hairy brother Esau. We have the word here, Edom, related to the Hebrew word for red, which recalls the ruddy complexion of the firstborn Esau and the red stew that uh, was sold to him by Jacob to gain the birthright. So these are words that are kind of filled with, with anxiety for Jacob. He approaches his brother Esau in the land of Seir in the country of Edom. It's been 20 years since the brothers had seen each other, plenty of time for Esau's rage to subside, but Jacob takes no chances and he proceeds very cautiously. Verse 4, he instructed them, that's his messengers, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. Note in verse 4 the respectful terms, my master Esau, my, I am the servant Jacob. These were customary phrases of simple polite speech. But I think they are also indication here of an absence of arrogance on Jacob's part. Jacob seems to want to make things right with his brother Esau, at least to relate to him peacefully. And he also wants him to know that I come peacefully. This is a lumbering, slow, peaceful family on the move that uh, could use Esau's help, as a matter of, matter of fact. Maybe he would uh, appropriately help them along in their way. He speaks of himself here then in terms almost of weakness. I have children with me. I have wives with me. I have uh, uh, servants with me. And I have all of this wealth with me, all this cattle. And, and, and perhaps I could have your help, brother as I come through. This was not 
by contrast, a fast-moving, aggressive war party coming to meet Esau with ill intent. So Jacob dispatches his messengers and he waits anxiously. But his hopeful anxiety is quickly transformed to sheer terror. Verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Those are about some of the scariest words in the Bible. If you can put yourself there, you're going out to send messengers to meet this man, and here he comes to meet you. After 20 years, somehow Esau has heard that Jacob is on the move and is headed back to the land. And he's coming with, a, with an army. That phrase, coming to meet you, in the Hebrew is often used of a military uh, idea, with a military sense. It has, it's loaded with military connotations. He's coming to meet you. We don't know exactly what he's going to do. The messengers don't seem to indicate that, but he's marching with an army. He's, you're coming slowly toward him. He's coming very quickly towards you. No women, no children, no cattle, just an army. And obviously, Jacob responds, as we might imagine here in verse 7, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape, or we might have the translation here, the camp, the, the, uh, going back to Mahanim, the two camps. He puts his people into two camps here, divides them up, it's obvious, so that if Esau comes and attacks one with 400 men, maybe they can run off uh, some of them and be spared. It's not a very exciting situation here for Jacob. Not a very enjoyable thing to do, to divide your family up into two camps and say, well, one's going down, maybe the other will escape into the desert or something. Moses uses very strong words here to define or describe Jacob's fear. He prepares to lose everything, including his life. But in characteristic fashion, we see here Jacob devising yet another plan. But he does something here that is very uncharacteristic as well. At verse 9, he begins to pray. Jacob was, has always been a grasping, scheming, planning, mover, and shaker. He has not to this point in the text proven to be a man of prayer and dependence on the Lord. He's a doer, not a depender. But Jacob is changing before our eyes in the text. With his back against the wall, he prays. And notice how he prays. It's not merely, God, get me out of this mess. God, save me and I'll serve you in the future. But notice verse 9, this prayer. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. It's the longest prayer in the book of Genesis, an extended prayer from the mouth of Jacob, the man who seems to have completely lacked prayer to this point in the book. What is the main gist? It is, of course, there in verse 11, save me. This is his prayer to God, save me. But what is the basis of that prayer? It is the word of God. Notice verse 9. Jacob prayed, O God of my father, who said to me, 
go back to this country. Verse 12, but you have said, I will surely make you prosper, etc. He appeals to the word of God. Jacob prays for rescue, verse 11, but he bases that request upon God's word. And this is typical of biblical prayers. If you go through all of the prayers of the Bible, you will see this consistent theme of a prayer that is based on an argument with God. Not an argument, and a mean argument, a mean-spirited argument, but one which seeks to present a case as before a, a judge and a jury. And it says, God, here is your word. Here is what you have said. Now, God, be true to your word. Jacob has that ability here in this prayer. He prays, God, you have promised to bless me in this land, to prosper, prosper me in this land. I'm not in this land. And I've got an army coming down, breathing heavily upon me. And I, God, you've got to keep your word. Please keep your word. Don't break your word and shame your name by proving unfaithful to your call, to your promise. Verse 10, now we notice here as well, a very important aspect of this prayer. He says, I'm unworthy of your kindness and unfaithfulness. God, Jacob argues this point on the basis of God's veracity, his faithfulness to his word. He does not argue on the basis of his own inherent righteousness. In fact, he says here that I am unworthy and I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. Now that's an idiom. Uh, we, we might use the phrase, I, I left with only the shirt on my back. We don't really mean that, literally, that we had more than that. But the, the idea is I really had very little I left with only the staff in my hand. It might indicate that, as we looked at it earlier, that he did, in fact, uh, make his way to Haran walking. That's not necessary by this phrase. It's just a figure of speech. But the point is very clear. I left with nothing but the shirt on my back, and I have come back two companies. I have enough children. I have enough wives. I have enough possessions to divide them into two camps. You have enriched me. But here's what I owe it to, God. I owe it to your kindness and to your faithfulness. Kindness is the Hebrew word for covenant loyalty. God has entered into covenant with Jacob, not because Jacob deserves it, but because God chose this relationship. And Jacob expresses his assurance that God will prove faithful to his promise. It is a tremendous prayer. It is a prayer of, of utter dependence upon God. Verse 13 he spent the night there. And from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to the servants, Go ahead of me, keep some pace between the herds. He instructed the one in the, in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And to be sure, and be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. 
but he himself spent the night in the camp. Let's stop for just a moment. What do we have going on here? Imagine a wealthy husband. Children have left the home some time ago, but a wealthy husband with his wife. It is their 35th wedding anniversary, and he forgets about it. Not a good situation, right? And he's in trouble. Then his wife of 35 years finds out that not only did he forget about it, he lied about it, he didn't forget about it. There was a fishing trip that he went off on for a week with his friends, and he knew it was his anniversary, but he just pretended to forget about it. Now he's really in deep weeds. And he says, how am I going to get out of this? What does he do? He confesses his wrong. He comes clean. I admit I was wrong. And I know we've not endured these 35 years because I'm a saint and such a wonderful man, but because of your love and your kindness to me. And takes off that day for work. And about 12 o'clock, the doorbell rings, and there are, take the number, 45 red roses. Just all, I mean, a huge bunch of red roses that are delivered, and this is from your husband. She's still mad very mad, but it's starting to help a little, isn't it? <laughs> then he comes home and says, unexpectedly, we're going to go out for dinner tonight, and at dinner he gives her a little present, and inside that present are two beautiful diamond earrings. And then he says to her, and outside there's awaiting a car, and we're going to head in the car, and we're heading to the airport, and we're going to fly to some exotic part of the world for a month of vacation. Well, she's starting to warm a little, isn't she? <laughs> you see what Jacob's doing. He's spacing out these gifts, and each one is very, or, or, or is, is very expensive. But he gives a little space in between each one, hoping to appease his brother Esau for having betrayed him and stolen the blessing from their father Isaac. 550 animals. That's a lot of cash in our day. In dramatic procession, hoping to pacify his brother. The Hebrew is actually very interesting. It reads here, literally, I will cover his face and perhaps he will receive my face. I will cover his face, or sometimes the word is translated to propitiate. I will appease his anger. I will satisfy his wrath against me with these gifts, I hope. I suppose to some degree there's a sense here where Jacob doesn't really put a whole lot of confidence in Esau or in his wisdom. He's thinking with these gifts that will be enough to satisfy him. But we must also understand that Jacob is terrified. He's terrified. He's doing everything that he can think of to make his brother happy and to atone for his earlier sin. We read then at verse 21 that Jacob's gifts go ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. Jacob has met angels in the land. He prepares to meet Esau in the land. And now Jacob wrestles with God. We find physical preparation, first of all, to meet with Esau at verse 22 and following. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. The Jabbok is a fast-rushing stream. It cuts through deep canyons and spills eventually into the Jordan River, about 23 miles north of the Dead Sea. So here's this brook running east to west. Jacob is moving south. 
he sends his family in these two camps over this brook. That means he's sending them toward Esau and toward danger. He apparently, we can't really ultimately understand here, but he apparently is going to remain behind the brook for this night alone. He's cutting off the escape route. We're not going to run from Esau. We're not going back to Haran. We're going to stay here and we're going to, this thing's going to have to work itself out, but I'm very afraid of what may happen tomorrow. Can you imagine that night, assuming it probably is nighttime here, this Jabbok uh, brook is it's, it's carved through the, and it falls tremendously, so it's, it's a very fast-rushing stream that would have been filled uh, during times of runoff rain, but uh, other times there might have been something going through. There's probably not too much going through at this point because he's able to get everybody across just that evening as he comes up with this plan of setting them on the other side and dividing them in half. But can you imagine that scene? His family has come back to Palestine and now it's time for Jacob to pay his dues. Been 20 years since what he did to Esau, but he's come back. Daddy, what are we doing? What are we doing tonight? Why are we doing this? Uh, you could just kind of hear him say, and maybe in our terms, well, Daddy's got a debt to pay. Don't worry about it. It's sending him over the river. And I wonder about Rachel and Leah. They're probably in a bit of shock. They did not know a return to Canaan would mean their husband had to stare down an old ghost from his past. No one had counted on this. No one had counted on meeting Esau with an army. We can't be sure, but verse 23 does indicate that Jacob probably stayed on the north side of the Jabbok to be alone with his thoughts. He was left there alone, as verse 24 makes clear. And I think if I can get into this scene, if I can bring you into this scene, I think we need to see, first of all, what is Jacob's state of mind? He's in agonized terror. He fears for his own life and the life of all that he has and all of his possessions. Agonized terror. And he's alone in the dark. I imagine him probably pacing back and forth, maybe wringing his hands, maybe beating his head for answers, wondering what, if I thought of everything, if I come up with it all, what can I do? How can I escape my brother? William Shakespeare, the great writer, English writer, made much of these night before the great battle scenes in a number of his plays. These were very significant aspects of it. Think of uh, King Henry VIII in that um, play. He has a very important scene that night before the battle. Nobody can really sleep. People are left alone with their thoughts, and it's a time when a soldier really has to come to terms with life and what matters. Here's Jacob agonizing over his past, fearing this meeting with Esau. If I had only done it differently, if I had just waited on the Lord for the blessing and not tried to steal it in my own terms, going over it in his mind, agonizing here, and all of a sudden, a shadow, perhaps a noise. Who's there? Jacob calls out, maybe. Or perhaps he keeps silence, straining his eyes and ears to discern who it is that's there with him. Everybody, as far as he knows, is on the other side of the brook. He's here alone, and there's somebody with him, somebody here in the dark. The sound of the jabbok makes it hard to hear. The darkness makes it hard to see. But there he stands, all alone, when finally a man approaches him in the dark and slams into him. 
Verse 24 says that a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Those are just a few words that carry a lot of freight when it comes to the physical scene that is here. Rolling around on the ground, they felt one another's sweat. They twisted and grabbed and threw their bodies. They smelled one another's breath. They could hear every grunt and moan. They felt the sharp pains as they took hard tumbles, grasping, squeezing, turning, flailing body parts, muscle pitted against muscle. All night long they fought. Undoubtedly, they would have had to take breaks. The human body isn't capable of fighting that hard for that long. There were probably times when they took breaks, panting for air, gasping for air, circling one another trying to gain the advantage. And I think through all of this, I, ha- I see it as Jacob is saying here, who is this? In the dark. Who do, you, who do you think he thinks it is? Somehow in all of this, Esau has surprised us. He's come over the valley. My family has probably all been slaughtered in the night. And here's Esau coming across to get me. And he fights with him all night long to a stalemate. He can't get the upper hand, nor can his opponent, whom he does not know. But when the man, that is his opponent, saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched, and he wrestled as he wrestled with the man. A wrestler's pivot strength comes largely from his hips as he twists and turns and throws, and that is now taken away from Jacob as his hip socket is dislocated. He is essentially lame in this one leg. His physical strength is now severely compromised. This one that he cannot overcome, and now here he is fighting on uneven terms. But as the day begins to dawn, it begins to dawn on Jacob that he's not wrestling Esau after all. He's wrestling with God. He wrestled with the man, verse 26, Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Daybreak. All that I know, all that we can discern here, is that it's very possibly connected to this concept that we find in, for instance, Exodus 33.20, that a man cannot see God and live. So with the coming of day... God, as he wrestles in human form here with Jacob, knows that it's time to leave. And and I think God is very much, and obviously through all of this, playing with Jacob here. It's not that he cannot overpower him. It's that he is giving him that sense and that idea that they cannot win one over the other. There's a struggle that's going on. All that Jacob can do now is not to wrestle and win, but to cling. And he says, bless me. It's dawning on Jacob. This is God. This is not Esau. Jacob is beginning to change before our eyes. He is operating now and has already in the text, not by deception, but by prayer. Jacob's physical strength has been compromised. He's going to have to go on from here trusting in God alone. And so he clings in that last moment and says, I can't wrestle Esau tomorrow morning in my own strength. You've taken it all away. I'm exhausted. I've wrestled all night. I've had no sleep. And now you've dislocated my hip. I can't do anything to fight and to spare myself. God, I must have your blessing. It's my only hope. 
Verse 27, the man asked him, what is your name? We have to understand in a Hebrew sense, that's kind of like, we have this little phrase we say sometimes when we're wrestling, say uncle. In our home, it's say snickle snort. If you say snickle snort, you always get loose. If you don't, you never know what might happen. <laughs> but there, you, it, the person who's the superior fighter sometimes says, say uncle. Say something to show that you've kind of given up a little bit and I've won the battle, though I won't hurt you any further. I think that's a little bit of what God's saying here to him. What is your name? Give me your name. I don't know that Jacob really wants to share that name. Because it's Jacob, supplanter. It has come to mean, though it could mean something else, it has come to mean deceiver. I'm the deceiver. I'm the, I'm the mover and shaker, the planner, the person who works around the details and makes sure I always get my way. Your name is what? My name is Jacob. Say uncle, Jacob. Uncle. Bless me. Bless me. Verse 28, the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. There's a renaming here, a parallel certainly to Abram being renamed Abraham. It marks a change of direction, a change of character for Jacob. He will ever after be Israel, the one who struggles with God and overcomes, and who struggles with man and overcomes. He has struggled with man and, over, and has overcome, but it has always been by the grace of God, and this will be the nature of Israel, to always be struggling with man, but in the end overcoming through the grace and the power of God. This is now Jacob as the head of his people. Verse 29, Jacob said, please tell me your name. Now here we find a little different phrase. It's not say uncle, now it's please. Please, tell me your name, will you? Will you share with me who you are? I know you're not Esau, and I know you're no man. What is your name? He is ignored, but it reads just simply, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. I suppose it's a way of saying, you know who I am. Why do you ask my name? You know who I am. And he blessed him there. He blessed him with a new name. He blessed him with a new day. In verse 31, the sun then rose above him as he passed Peniel. That's what it will become. And he was limping because of his hip. That is, the place will be called Peniel. He's limping because of his hip. Therefore, verse 32, to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. That is, the sciatic nerve, the thigh nerve that runs through the socket of the hip was something that was left alone in memory of this event by the Israelites as they ate meat. But what is significant to us here in verse 31 is that the Jacob who met God in the night was a new, has a new orientation on life. He is no longer the schemer. He is now the man of confidence in God. Walkie puts it this way so well. The patriarch walks away from the struggle limping in the morning light of a new day. He walks away limping in the morning light 
of a new day. We obviously are not going to wrestle with God in the, on these same terms in our day, in our setting. But we do learn from Jacob, first of all, that the most important consideration in any trial that you face is God. Not the details of the trial, not its solution, not the other person, not how to solve the problem. The greatest consideration in any trial that you will ever face is God. Jacob walks away from Peniel exhausted, limping, completely spent. But it's now, after a night of wrestling, it's now, after being injured so that he cannot wrestle, it's now that he's ready to meet Esau. I think of that in the life of Jesus when you see him just before a day of incredible importance, a busy day. He knows that it's coming. I think, for instance, of the day in which he chooses some of the disciples. And what does he do the night before? Well, Jesus doesn't do anything because Jesus knows all things and he doesn't have to worry about it. He knows the end from the beginning and he just goes to bed, right? What does he do? That's not true. Of course, he does know the end from the beginning, but he wrestles with his father in prayer all night. That means he went into that next day with not a lot of energy. But he went into that next day having to depend upon the power and the strength of God. Because Jesus understood that in the midst of any decision or any trial or any circumstance, what is more important than anything else is God. You will not be tackled in the dark some evening and start a wrestling match with God. God did that with Jacob, but that was Jacob. That's a different time. But God is there in every situation of life, guiding, directing, and pointing us to the right path. God wants you to see Him in every trial that you face. And you know, look around. Because sometimes we tend to see the trial as circumstances and people. And so often, in the midst of the trial, we're really battling God. He's seeking to show Himself to us. What God did want to accomplish in this wrestling match was for Jacob to acknowledge His presence. Why? Because secondly, God wants us to move from wrestling to clinging. If I could put it that simply as we use the analogy of this passage. He wants you to move from wrestling to clinging. He wants me to cling in faith, not merely to wrestle. When we wrestle with God, we tend to ask a lot of questions. Why is this happening? Why do things need to be this way? Can't you just change the situation, God? Where are you taking me in all of this? And when we wrestle with God, we tend then to try to fix things our way. God wants us to move in these times from interrogative and manipulative wrestling to a simple clinging to Him in faith. We don't have to figure out our lives. We don't have to solve everything on our own. What we do need to do is cling to the hand of God. He wants to move us from wrestling to clinging. And thirdly, it is better to meet God and walk away crippled than it is to labor in your own strength without His blessing. 
which you need much more than having your financial troubles solved, which you need much more than having your relationships solved, the ones that are difficulties to you, what you need much more than having circumstances line up in a different way so that things go more, go more easily for you. What you need more than any of that is the blessing of God. You look for any person in the pages of church history who has been deeply blessed by God and has stood out as a person of great faith and accomplishment for the Lord, you won't find a one of them that lived an easy, simple life. Because it's better to walk crippled in life than to walk with health and out without the blessing of God. Jesus reminded us of this, the Lord reminded us of this in 2 Corinthians 12.10 when he said, through the words of Paul, when I am weak, then I am strong. The surest way of prevailing with man is to prevail with God. To enlist God in our behalf. Do we have a wound? Do you have a wound in the trial that you suffer? Something that may never change the rest of your life? Something that holds you back from physical strength? from relational strength, from financial strength, whatever it is, is there a wound? It's not the end of the world. If you find God wrestling in the night in the Jabbok River, you've lost nothing. You've gained something. Even if you've lost your health or your future as you see it. If a wound brings you closer to God, give thanks. We need above all else the blessing of our Lord upon our lives. And if your trial makes this clear, you have not lost. You have won. You have wrestled with God and you've prevailed. Limping into a new day is its own blessing. And it opens the door into new blessings from the hand of our kind and faithful God. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, I pray that it would be the passion of our heart to be blessed by you above all things. If someone laid out before us $40 million dollars, as choice A and choice B was to be blessed by you through the trials and difficulties that await us, I pray, God, that we'd take B, that we'd accept your blessing above all the wealth of this world. Lord, I pray that we could line up all of those in this life that are nearest and dearest to us, closest to us, the greatest prizes that we have in this world, the greatest possessions, the greatest relationships, all the people that mean the most to us, and we'd be willing to give them all to you in death if it would mean that we'd have your blessing according to your plan. God, I pray that we'd be willing to make such a choice, to realize in this way how vital is your blessing. And I pray that we would learn to wrestle with you through the trials of life, the fearful moments that we face, and that we would learn that you are there, that you long to teach us to cling in faith, and that no trial that draws us closer to you 
is ever a loss. God, I pray that our people, that this church, that our assembly together would learn to wrestle with you as an assembly, that we'd be willing to trust you for the future, willing to work to accomplish what you have for us against the odds and against the grain, that as individuals we would be willing to wrestle with you in prayer, seeking your blessing, asking, calling upon you, Lord, to fulfill your word that you would never leave us or forsake us, that you would bless us in all things, that you would work all things together for your good, for our good and for your glory. God, may this be the case with each of us. May we be willing to wrestle. It's exhausting. It's hard. It hurts. It's painful. It's unpleasant. Lord, may we remember that we bring from here only what we've done for you. We, leave, we came into this, to this world with nothing and we leave with nothing but our faith. May that faith be solid. Lord, we do not ask that you spare us. We ask that you hold our hand. You take us through any fire, through any trial, through any difficulty. Showing us and evidencing to us your presence. And I pray for those here in this assembly, and those maybe that are not with us today, for your people throughout the world. But I pray specifically for those that are here in this assembly today who are wrestling. They're wrestling with circumstances and with other people that are making their life difficult and fearful. And I pray, God, that as they wrestle with you, they'd cling to you in faith, that they'd trust your hand and trust that any wound that you deliver will be recompensed in the future as we place our faith in you as the one who is and rewards those who diligently seek him. Grant us this faith, dear God, for you are a kind and gracious God. May our hearts long after you and wrestle with you to see your blessing upon our lives as we bring them in line with your truth. This is my prayer, and for anyone who may not know you as personal Savior and Lord, we pray, dear Father, that you will rescue such a one. Bring them to the point of faith in Christ where the wrestling ends and the joy begins. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.